Hello, good evening, and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, I visit a troop of sea scouts on Bull Island in Dublin, and we hear from a Norwegian adventurer who became the first woman to ski to the South Pole. The Sea Scouts teach children and young people all about the sea and many life skills. And recently I visited the 5th Port Sea Scouts at their den in Dalymount in Dublin to speak to some of the leaders and some of the children. They say that the Crow's Nest Den, just over the wooden bridge in Dalymount on Bull Island, is the best in the country and it really is a wonderful place. No, it's not a race, but it is a bit of a relay race. Yeah, so what we're going to do is, you guys, you're going to, the first person in the line for your team, okay, you're going to kneel down on the ground, you're going to take off your neckerchief or your hat, right, and your shoes, and you're going to put them in front of you, all right? And when we sound the whistle, you have to stand up, get your shoes and your neckerchief back on, run to the line of the rope, and back. While you're running, the second person in your team is taking off their neckerchief and their shoes. Does everyone understand? Yeah. Yeah. Any questions? Hello, uh, my name is uh, John O'Neill. This particular branch of the Sea Scouts was formed over 100 years ago um, on Dolly Mount. Um, and uh, we have quite a few uh, members, between three and 400 members across the different sections. Uh, we have uh, small sections for the beavers, which is typically kids six to eight years old. And the next sections up are the cubs, which is eight to 12. And then the scouts themselves, who are uh, 12 or uh, 12 years onwards, um, up to the venture age. And um, we'd have uh, a lot of the people who work down here, leaders and um, scouters, they would have started out their scouting journey here as teenagers or mm. cubs or beavers themselves many, many years ago. You've got an incredible den here. We've come over the little bridge over towards Bull Island and you're just here almost in the sea. Oh yeah, it's absolutely extraordinary uh, to have the lagoon on our left here, which allows us to uh, take our scouts out sailing or kayaking or canoeing in a very, very safe, um, enclosed uh, body of water, but also to have the availability of Dublin Bay if we were to go out underneath the bridge for some of the slightly more adventurous older scouts, and um, we can do um, a lot of sailing out there as well. But also great to have just this biosphere and this area of natural diversity uh, where the beavers and the cubs can get an appreciation for both the outdoors um, and how important preservation is to be here in what is um, a protected site or sanctuary for so many different types of animals and uh, seabirds and that. It's, it's fantastic. It really opens our eyes up to um, what's going on in the world outside of the urban environment we all spend most of our days in. You've got your own boats here. What kind of boats do you bring them out in? A variety of um, boats here. We've got these two in front of us here are rowing boats and we have a couple of traditional old East Coast skiffs down behind in the boat deck. Uh, we also have um, several sailing boats that most commonly used one is a vessel called the BPA team, which is designed for scouts. It's a very safe boat to learn how to sail in and can accommodate um, five or six people in on board at any one time, which makes it very, very good for teaching. Um, and we use a lot of canoes and stuff as well, Canadian canoes and kayaks, um, particularly for the younger members because it's easier to teach them how to kayak before learning how to sail. How many times a week, a month do you bring them out here? Uh, we bring them out uh, whenever there's a good tide, at the time that coincides with our meeting. Um, so the younger members um, 
beavers we'd meet once a week on a Saturday and if that is a good tide on a Saturday afternoon we'll spend our time on the water um, during the uh, summer months when it's not too cold. For the older groups, the scouts and the cubs, they have a little bit more autonomy so they'd be, they'd be out as often as they possibly could be um, sailing because they can, they can do th- stuff in the evenings as well as um, uh, during the weekends. You've got your own slipway here and your boats are here. As you said, they're good. They look really safe. Yeah, good solid vessels. Yeah, they've been around for a good few years. All the maintenance is done uh, in-house as well. Um, we've got a man called Bert who spends an awful lot of his time paying particular attention to all of the um, elements of each boat. Um, and there's quite a few other people. The scouts as well, the senior members, they, they help out and they do a lot of the painting and uh, preparation and repair work on the boats. We can hear all the seabirds uh, here now that the tide is out. What else are they learning? Um, they learn all sorts of things. We don't just focus on water-based activities. Uh, we would take our beavers out hiking. Uh, we would bring them to uh, the likes of Hoth um, and teach them outdoor adventure skills. Uh, we would go visit the likes of the Coast Guard stations and the fire stations. Um, and we would um, teach them the various skills that go along with the badges introductory level first aid for example for our young members uh, they'd also learn a little bit of navigation how to use a compass rope work the knots the a very knots, cliched yeah. thing about scouts but that is a big part of it uh, knowing how to tie the right knot in the right circumstances has always been very very important life skill to have they learn a little bit of everything they would learn about nature they learn about ecology they learn about the environment uh, they learn about how to take care of all of these things uh, they learn how to work as a group mostly we try to keep it informal fun and there is an education element to it as well of course because you're teaching them about the outdoors and how to look after themselves uh, how to mind themselves a bit of personal responsibility you know we teach them everything from how to use a compass how to navigate using the stars to how to cook yourself a meal with is there a small cost involved there is a membership fee uh, to be in the scouts uh, there's an annual membership fee um, but there's generally speaking that covers all the activities you're going to take part in during the year and when I visited the Sea Scouts in Dollymount, some of the young members were very keen to talk to me. It felt oh no! <laughs> what do you learn at the Sea Scouts? Learning how to be safe when you're near a fire. Have you ever been on a boat? I've been on a canoe. What was it like? Good. Wait, did you go very far? Maybe to those little rocks. Okay. Did you have a life jacket? Uh, yeah. Do you wear one every time? Yeah. What do you like about the Sea Scouts? Uh, having fun and making friends. What's your name? James Tobin. James, what are you learning at the Sea Scouts? We're learning how to be safe near water and how to help people who are in trouble and learning knots. What knots have you learned? Can you do a bowline? No, not yet. Okay, what, are, what knots are you learning? I think a hitch knot and... Club not. Have you been on boats? Yes. I've been on a canoe and a kayak. And that's all. What's your name? Sive Reddy. Sive, what age are you? Eight. What are you learning at the Sea Scouts? We're learning how to be really safe near water, fire, and we went on a couple of camping trips to also learn how to be safe in the wild. Where did you go camping? Um, Larch Hill. What was it like? It was really fun. I really liked it there. And we got amazing food. It was so nice. You got good food? Yes. Like what? Anytime I've been camping, the food has been horrible. (laughs) We got um, ham sandwiches and bags of crisps when we were going hiking. And we got... There's like 
a field near the camping spot and we played loads of games in the field. Do you wear a uniform for the Sea Scouts? Uh, yes. What is it? It's a jumper and a red necker and we have some trousers but we don't usually wear that. Do you always wear life jackets when you're on the boat? Yes, always. Okay. What's your name? Joni. Joni, what age are you? Um, I'm eight years old. Everybody here is eight, are they? Yeah. What's this place? Do you know what Sea Scouts this is? Um, it's called Dolly Man Sea Scouts. What, do you like it here? I do like it here because we do lots of activities and we're able to go into the water. Have you learned knots? A clove hitch. And you forget the rest? Yeah. <laughs> we have, we're in a bit of a state because we had to do a lot of work to the building over the last year, two years, because the vessel, uh, the ship had to be brought up to um, standard for... You call it a ship? <laughs> that's just force of habit, I think. <laughs> but the building had to be brought up to a modern standard, so there's a lot of new plastering work and stuff after going on and new fire stopping. And, but this particular room is called the wardroom, and it's very lovely. I mean, there's lots of lovely timbers and maritime touches and features to it. And yeah, you've got all your memorabilia, your cups. Your... and awards and prizes and, yeah, memorabilia. It's a beautiful room. It is indeed. And we've got one more lovely room that would be nice to show you. It's the bridge room, where you get this amazing view out across the lagoon. It could almost be a bird observatory here. It could. It certainly could. And I think you know, people have come down to use it for that purpose. Um, and it's just a great way to get a great view of the, the salt marshes and the lagoon at low tide and all the wading birds feeding. It's yeah, we can fabulous. look right back into the city, see the cranes there in the IFSC, the bridge at Dolomad, what do we call the bridge? That's the wooden bridge, the fabulous bridge, um, been there for a very, very long time now at this stage. And it is Bull Island. It is Bull Island, yeah. Built by Bly of the Bounty, really. Built by Bly of the Bounty and nature. Natural engineering and... Uh, bit of a contribution from Bly, all right, in constructing the walls. But it was forming before the walls ever okay. uh, were there. It just uh, was sort of hemmed in and became a little bit more of a solid mass over a rapid, more rapid period of time, I think. We'll have a look in here. Yeah. John, this is, looks like your storeroom. Uh, it's uh, got... This is the quartermaster stores. This is where we keep all of the uh, group watch boxes and the tents and the tables and the dining shelters for when we go on camp. So we've got to keep these in a good shelves, dry storage, um, location down here at the end. As you can imagine, storing things and keeping it dry down here right beside the lagoon can be quite tricky. Sure. Um, but uh, that's where we keep all of our stuff here. Um, if you'd like to come out to the boat yeah. deck at the back, we can show you where we keep our some of our skiffs for the winter. You're pretty well set up in the building here. Uh, very much so. There's been a lot of um, repair work and construction work that's taken place over the last two years. Um, just to bring the building back up to a more modern standard um, but that's coming to a close now as well so um, it all happened during the COVID period. Sure, what did you do during COVID? Did you, did you close down? Once groups were allowed to meet again um, and we were able to do so under the rules uh, we met every week um, and we'd meet and we kept outside we've only returned to using the indoors of the den in the last three weeks. Now typically speaking we'd be outdoors anyway but we had, you know, because of our activities, we like to do as much as we can outside. Um, but uh, we we made a very strong, concerted effort to keep going um, during COVID and to keep the kids active yeah. and to give them something to do every single week. 
you've got all your boats here and oars and these huge blocks. <laughs> you hardly use those. Oh, we wouldn't use those. They are just bits of equipment that have been in the den and are sort of part of the heritage and history of the place. We keep them clean and on displays. It's to, to provide the character and to remind us of um, just the maritime background of ourselves as a group, but also of Dublin as a city. We've got boats, oars, masts, sails, life jackets and life jackets. and oh, All the equipment you could ever want to have for, uh, to go sailing for a day is here and uh, kept in very good condition by our scouts. So. Yeah, is, do they do the maintenance? You said you have somebody who does a lot of the maintenance. Is that yeah, a it's paid the leader, job? It, no, no, it's the leaders. Um, it's all voluntary. Um, it's the leaders and the scouts themselves, the older scouts, the 14, 15, 16-year-old members. They would do a lot of the work, but uh, any of the more technical stuff would be carried out by volunteers okay. um, and our own leaders in-house. How, how long, typically, do they stay in the scouts and do they move on to something else afterwards? It varies for everybody, um, but a lot of people, they start their journey in Beavers, which is at six years old, yeah. and they'll go right the way through until they're 17 or 18 when they finish school and life takes them somewhere else, be it college or not. A lot of people uh, return to scouting to help out. Um, I myself, I was a member here when I was um, a teenager, and um, when my daughter was of scouting age, I brought her down, I wanted her to join to have the experience and the rewards that I got from scouting you know I decided to become a leader to get involved because um, you get to come down I'm spending the time here anyway dropping my child down so why not give a little bit back uh, to the group that gave me so much as a teenager growing up um, I think that's important and we've lots of wonderful leaders down here with that same thinking um, you know so I don't think you ever leave scouting as yeah. such um, I was stepped away from it temporarily albeit for over 20 years but back at it again now and um if we want to find out more about Dollymount Sea Scouts, is there a website? Uh, there is a website, um, Fifthport Dollymount. Um, you'll find it just by searching it on Google. Um, and our phone number and contact details and email are there if you're interested in um, learning a little bit more about the group. Or there's usually somebody down here. Why not come down and see us? Say hello, stick your head in the door, um, ask a leader for what's what and what's going on. And uh, have a look at the place. And many thanks to John O'Neill and all the Sea Scouts in Dollymount. In just over 60 days, covering more than 800 miles on skis while pulling a 350-pound sledge in 2017-2018, Norwegian adventurer and oncology nurse Astrid Furholt became the first woman to ski to the South Pole. By then, she had undertaken many other adventures, and she was recently invited to the Shackleton Autumn School in Athai in County Kildare. Lorna Siggins met her there and she first asked her what motivated her to undertake these challenges. I work as a nurse specialised in cancer and in 2007 I had this patient telling me to live while I was alive. And for me that was a change in my life because I had a, a job where everything was kind of sad and yeah, people were dying, you had families around them and all these things that made me sad also. For me, that meant that I had stopped to do the things that I loved to do. And so I was thinking a lot about this, that he was saying, uh, living while you're alive, what does that mean? And what should that mean for me? And for me, it was um, doing the things that I love to do again, try to get my smile back and my laughter back and all that. So um, it meant that I had to go out in the forest, Start with small trips, uh, do bigger trips, 
uh, trips in the mountain, uh, staying overnight in tents. After that, expeditions, expeditions in the summer and in the winter, and yeah, on and on it went. <laughs> so, and were these sort of mountaineering expeditions, skiing expeditions, that sort of thing? It was both, yeah. Climbing in the mountains in the summer and skiing in the winter. And after that, I got on a trip to Spitsbergen. I went to Spitsbergen uh, together with Berge Auslan, that is one of my big heroes that are still alive <laughs> in polar exploration. And we were crossing uh, Spitsbergen from top down to the bottom. And on the way back, he asked me what my big dream was. And yeah, when you're talking about dreams, it's like a, a bit scary because they're yours and you don't always want to tell them to others. But I told him that I wanted to go to Antarctica on a long expedition down there. That was my dream. He said that I'll go back home and, and think about it and give you a call in a few days and uh, come with a suggestion. And he did. <laughs> And he said, uh, Astrid, I think you should try to go Amundsen's route to the South Pole. Uh, we have been waiting for the woman with those qualities that we think she, she should have. And I think it's you. So I think you should go. And that was really crazy for me to hear because he's kind of my hero. And hearing that person say that to me was nearly felt off my chair, I felt. So, yeah. And I didn't look back after that. So it, it took me four years after that before I went on the expedition, or close to four years. So it was so much things that had to be done. And the expedition is on, on the other side of the continent compared to where the other expeditions normally goes. The logistic and everything was nothing I could share with anyone else. I had to pay my own plane, getting fuel out a year before, and paying a big bond to insurance, things like that, in case anything happened out there. They even had to fly an extra plane down from Canada that year because of my expedition, so they had the safety in place if anything would happen. So did you have to do a lot of fundraising yourself as well? Yeah, it was not easy for me to go out and ask for sponsorship because I was um, yeah, a nearly 50-year-old woman that wanted to go to the South Pole. Yeah, but <laughs> you've got the experience and the mental strength as well. Uh, and that was also what I think my sponsor or those that I worked with, they found that in me, um, special things that they couldn't find in a young athlete. For example, I took an ice cream to the South Pole and they were tracking with a GPS the ice cream and made a big thing out of it back in Norway. Were you then on your own? No, I had an assistant with me. I was planning to go there with another guy actually and I have built up the whole uh, expedition and done all the work and I damaged my foot so I had to wait another year to go on the expedition and that meant that the guy that was meant to be uh, come with me he, he couldn't go because he was doing something else so I had to find another one and so I, I got in another assistant yeah uh, yeah only 10 months before I left that's also challenging there must have been many sort of low points what did you think of to keep you going I was actually never there 
because I was so happy to have made it down there that I, I couldn't see anything that should take that away from me. I have never felt so happy in my whole life for anything. Is it because it's such a beautiful environment? Was that it? Yes, you are there and you also know the, the big job you have done before, all the people that are supporting you. My expedition was called Find Your South Pole. Uh, a part of that was asking people to sponsor me with a small amount uh, each and have their picture on my sledge. So I had picture of hundreds of people on my sledge. And it was like, if I felt a bit down a day or if it was really hard or really cold or anything like that, I was just looking at my sledge and I thought, okay, I'm going to take you to the South Pole. So, And how cold did it get for you? We have lots of different weather. The coldest we got was minus 32 degrees and a storm. So about minus 70 effective degrees. And that was so cold that you can't imagine how cold it is you couldn't stop you couldn't stay still you were like walking when you were drinking yeah you had to move all the time because you felt the blood was freezing in your veins it was crazy we were checking each other uh, do we have a small opening between the glasses and and the clothes or anything or yeah that could give frostbites or when we had a break we had to be very quick at them and you have to go to the toilet and that has to be very fast <laughs> it's like we said you have to push three times and that's it <laughs> you have to be finished because it's too cold to sit any longer so you also have to take care of your stomach and yeah make sure that works well, you were obviously able to ski, but you also had to ski sail, so you had to learn how to ski sail. Yeah, we had to learn, learn that before. Because in the beginning, when I started to build this expedition, I got told that it was possible to take me all the way out to the coast. Amundsen started at the coast, and they came in by ship the year before. But now I was going to go out there, and after a year or so, they told me that ah, we can't take you out there because we don't get any insurance for the, the plane. It's too risky to land there, so we have to go down earlier and put you off there. My drop-off was close to Oxlheiburg in the inner part of Bay of Wales. Yeah, then I had to ski sail on the way out and have a transport leg before I could even start on my trip. That also meant more days gone from the expedition to go all the way in. So I didn't get all the way out because of that. I got caught in a storm for five days on the way out. We ski sailed for a few days and got out to almost 82 degrees. And then we had to turn around and go back in again to make sure that we reached the South Pole in the other end before the last plane out. That was very difficult. Were you worried at any stage? You know, did you feel your life was at risk maybe in the storm? No, that, that was no worry. I have been in a tent before in storm and that was also one of the things I've been training on. I have seen the weather forecast in Norway and go up in the mountains and put up my tent and stay there in storms just to make sure that I know what to do in a storm and what if that and this and that happened with my tent I, I knew what to do so I had been practicing for that before so so that was okay so we were staying in the sleeping bag with lots of clothes on <laughs> and trying to read a book <laughs> and eating so that was five exciting days <laughs> how did you feel then when you made it to the South Pole 
the the last uh, last day was really a chaotic day for me because my feelings were up and down and I was laughing I was crying I was shaking I was yeah emotionally very unstable <laughs> that day <laughs> because there was so many things going through my head and one of those things that was so clear to me was when I reached the South Pole that I saw a picture in my head with my patient that has told me to live while I was alive and he was sitting on his bed and he was clapping his hand and he said you made it you made it is Amundsen now a bigger hero for you yeah absolutely yes it's difficult it's difficult now and it was difficult then so I can't imagine going out there and and they didn't know what were awaiting them after all I knew a bit more than them because I have read the books about what they experienced I have heard about other expedition I have seen one photo from Axel Heiberg before I left they didn't know anything about it Did you get some really lovely messages from people in Norway? Yeah, I did that, especially after when I came home and find your South Pole, that project. When I asked them for pictures, I also asked them to go for a, a dream that they had. And there were so many nice things that happened after that. So that could have been a book in itself. <laughs> you can you can live your dream if you want to. Yeah. And that was Astrid Forhold speaking to Lorna Siggins. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme is podcast. It's on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. And Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.